I know a funny little man, as quiet as a mouse, who does the mischief that is done in everyone's house. Though no one's ever seen his face, yet we all agree that every plate we break was cracked by Mr. Nobody. Tis he who always tears out books, who leaves the door ajar. He pulls the buttons from our shirts and scatters pins afar. The squeaking door will always squeak, for prithee, don't you see, we leave the oiling to be done by Mr. Nobody. He puts damp wood upon the fire that kettles cannot boil. His are the feet that bring in mud and all the carpet soil. The papers are always mislaid. Who had them last but he? There's no one tosses them about but Mr. Nobody. Finger marks upon the door by none of us are made. We never leave the blinds unclosed to let the curtains fade. The ink we never spill, the boots that lying around you see, are not our boots, they all belong to Mr. Mr. Nobody. Have you ever heard that poem before? Anyone? No? Do any of you have Mr. Nobody living in your house? Some of you? Because, tell me, what is the poem about? Right? The, the, the poem is really, is it not, the poem is a brilliant expression of our tendency to avoid responsibility, isn't it? And not just responsibility for our mistakes, but also our tasks, like oiling the doors and closing the blinds, right? Not me. Who is it? Not me. It must be Mr. Nobody. You know, in every family, each member of the family has certain responsibilities, don't they? In every family. But here's the question I want us to consider this morning, and that is, what about the family of God? What I mean as Christians, what are we responsible for? Especially when it comes to personal relationships. How are we, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, how are we to behave and treat one another? What are we responsible to do and to behave as we interact with each other? Well, turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 4. That's page 979 in that white paperback Bible. I'm going to suggest that as we're about to see, this is precisely the question that the Apostle Paul addresses and answers in our text this morning. And as you're turning there, let me give you the context Last week, as Wayne mentioned, we studied Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, where the Apostle Paul taught us this important truth, and that is, if you've learned Christ, if you've come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, 
if you've learned Christ, leave sinful ways. This was the thrust of what he was getting at in verses 17 through 24. He wants all of us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord is to, as Paul says in verse 17, to no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And when he's talking about Gentiles, he's referring to them using in the moral sense. We are to leave sinful ways behind. If you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, if you've learned Christ, as he says there in verse 20, leave sinful ways. And practically that looks like you put off your old self, you renew your mind, and you put on the new self. This, you could say, is kind of the big picture of what we're called to do. We're called to leave sinful ways. Here are the, the big movements of how you do that. Well, now, in verses 25 through the end of the chapter, verse 32, Paul is going to elaborate on the details. He's going to tell us what we are specifically to put off and put on. And as several commentators have rightly pointed out, all the commands in verses 25 through 32 have to do with relationships. In other words, Paul is articulating what each of us as Christians are responsible for in the body of Christ. And let me just say up front, look, listen, please, Faith. You cannot control another person's response, attitudes, or actions. You cannot. Nor are you called to control their actions, attitudes, or responses. But Christian, please hear me. As one who's been saved by the grace of God, you are commanded, regardless of what another person does, you are commanded to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. You are commanded in your personal relationships to no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So as we work through this passage, uh, my counsel to you is to say, is to have you have this mindset like, here is what God calls me to do in my relationships, in my home, in this church, in work. This is what God calls me to do. Rather than thinking, man, I hope so-and-so is listening right now. <laughs> okay? This is what you are called to do, Christian. So what does it look like to no longer walk as the Gentiles, to put off and to put on? Well, follow along with me in your copy of God's Word as I read Ephesians 25. I'm going to read down to 32, though this morning, the only thing that we're only going to be a bite off and to study closely, verses 25 through 28. But I'm going to read down to the end of the chapter. So Paul writes this. So after talking about, you know, if, if you've learned Christ, leave sinful ways, he then says this in verse 25. He says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Why? For we are members of one another. Church. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, 
doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Amen and amen. This is God's good word. When our son Noah, uh, our youngest, when he was uh, nine months old, uh, in his playful excitement, he would occasionally hit Stephanie or I in the face. We obviously didn't want him to keep doing this. <laughs> so after he would hit us in the face, he'd say, Noah, no, no hit. But that's not all we did. We then would take his little hand and we'd place it on our face and we'd say, gentle, gentle. And then we would say, family. We, we love family. Now, this was not some extraordinary feat of parenting, <laughs> doing this, okay? In fact, I'm quite sure many of you parents have probably done something similar to your young kids. But this is what we were doing. All we were doing was simply replacing his bad habit of punching us in the face with a new habit, a practice of being gentle, as well as giving him a reason why. We're family. We love family. Well, notice the Apostle Paul instructs Christians to do the same. In the passage I just read, Paul, as you'll no doubt notice, calls all Christians to replace sinful habits with godly practices. But that's not all. Notice he also gives a biblical reason as to why Christians ought to change their behavior. As pastor and author Tony Morita has correctly pointed out, he writes this, he says, Christians should not only live differently from unbelievers, but they also should live differently for different reasons. Right? We believe in God, sin, the devil, the spirit, the church, in Christ's death on the cross. These truths should affect the way we live. Indeed, we, we could summarize Paul's argument in this section, verses 25 through 32, with this statement, and that is, Christian, change your behavior for biblical reasons. Change your behavior for biblical reasons. This, I want to argue, 
is Paul's main point. Change your behavior for biblical reasons. And what follows here in 25 through 32 are several sinful habits. Christians are responsible. You, follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you who have been redeemed by Jesus, who have the Spirit dwelling within you to empower you to obey God's commands, these are what you are responsible for to put off as well as several corresponding godly practices that you're responsible to put on. And notice, each is given a biblical reason for why. Friend, if God has made you alive in Christ, if you've been chosen before the foundation of the world, if you've been predestined to be adopted as a son or a daughter, if you are indeed God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, then you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. But instead, you must put on these practices, again, regardless of what others are doing. You are responsible in your home, with your children, with your spouse, to put these on. And this morning, what I'd like to do is, in the verses 25 through 32, I want to just examine the first three. And notice, Paul begins by calling us first to replace lying with truth-telling. Look again there at verse 25. He says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Replace lying with truth-telling. In his book, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, Author Dan Airely talks about our tendency to be dishonest when we experience a hardship or we're going through a tough spot. For example, Dan writes this, quote, Over the course of many years of teaching, I have noticed that there typically seems to be a rash of deaths among students' relatives at the end of the semester. It happens mostly in the week before final exams and before papers are due. And guess which relative most often dies? Grandma. Listen to this. According to a peer-reviewed study, researchers discovered that grandmothers are ten times more likely to die before midterms (laughs) and 19 times more likely to die before a final exam. Worse, grandmothers of students who are not doing well in class are at even higher risk. (laughs) Students who are failing are 50 times more likely to lose grandma than non-failing students. Dan then writes this. It turns out that the greatest predicator of morality among senior citizens in our day ends up being their grandchildren's GPAs. The moral of all this, if you're a grandparent, do not let your grandchild go to college. 
it'll kill you, especially if he or she is intellectually challenged. Any grandmothers of college-age students out there? Don't say I didn't warn you, okay? As Dan's book empirically proves, the truth is we can often give way to compromise when in a tough spot, can't we? When faced with the choice of suffering an unpleasant consequence or compromise our ethics, the choice of compromise can sometimes win out, can it? And most often, that looks like lying. You notice what Paul writes. As those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, we must no longer walk as the Gentiles. We must put off the old self, and that means replacing lying with truth-telling. In faith, I cannot overstate how important this command is. You know, there are not many things that Scripture identifies as an abomination to the Lord. But lying lips is one of them. Proverbs 12.22 makes this very clear. And, and Christians, this ought to terrify us. God hates lying lips. And that should be a reason enough for us to tell the truth. Amen? But Scripture doesn't stop there. You see, lying lips are not only an abomination to the Lord, but they're also, listen, destructive to us and our relationships. Lies destroy relationships. And although we many times fail to recognize this in the moment, please hear me, we must realize that when we speak lies to those in our lives, we are literally speaking death to them. And notice, this is precisely why we are to put away falsehood. Notice the biblical reason why we were not to lie to one another. It's because of the church, he says, because we are members of one another. Think of how much Paul has been elaborating on how through Christ we are now one, right? How he's been talking about it as we're one and we must work towards unity. Lies and false messages among members actually render the body of Christ dysfunctional. This is why Calvin, in his commentary, he called lying a monstrosity. Theologian John McKay put it this way. He says, A lie is a stab into the very vitals of the body of Christ. This is so because a lie is a sable shaft from the kingdom of darkness. There is no place in the Christian ethic for the well-intentioned lie. And the moral behavior which Christ inspires, the end never justifies the means. 
think for a moment about your own speech this past week. How truthful were you to your spouse, to your children, to your boss, your employees? How truthful were you to your neighbors and friends? Have you thrust any sable shafts of darkness into the body of Christ? You know, one verse that has always fascinated me is Proverbs twelve seventeen. I'm going to throw it up here on the screen. Listen to this. Notice what it says. He says, the author writes, whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. Notice, the author says that, that he who speaks the truth gives honest evidence evidence. Now he could have said he who speaks the truth tells what is true, but is that what he says? No, instead he says gives honest evidence, which means he speaks in such a way so as to reflect reality accurately. Not only that, notice also what he doesn't say. He doesn't say a false witness speaks lies. Now, what do you say? He says, a false witness utters what? Deceit. You know what this verse is saying, friend? It's saying that you can deceive someone by saying something that is technically true, but it's spun in such a way that it doesn't accurately portray reality. And when you do this, you're denying the person you're speaking with their right to perceive reality. You are not giving honest evidence. You're speaking falsehood. As, as many of you know, uh, my family, we moved into a new home several years ago. The human beings in our family kept getting larger. So uh, we started looking for a larger home to accommodate said large human beings. And I have to say that when we were looking for a home many of the home descriptions we read online didn't accurately portray reality. In fact, there were a couple of times that after reading the description online, when we went to actually view the home, we didn't know if we had the correct address. Were the descriptions technically true? Perhaps. But the description didn't accurately portray reality. Beautiful creek in a backyard. Really? It's a drainage ditch. <laughs> Salesmen, parents, students, homemakers, employees, employers, please note, God's word just doesn't call you to speak technical truth. It calls you to speak truth in such a way that reflects reality accurately. Do you speak this way to your spouse? Do you speak this way to your children? 
Do you speak this way to others in this church? Or do you withhold honest evidence? Are you clear with your intentions when talking with someone? Or you just kind of like string them along? Do you only say what is technically true? So you can get what you want or avoid being responsible for something? Or do you work hard to portray reality accurately? You see, Faith, what we need to understand is that lying, speaking falsehood, it's a branch sin. What I mean, it's not the root problem. It is sin to be sure. Lying is sin to be sure. But it's not the root sin. And no, the root sin, the root problem, is that in my heart I'm valuing something more than God. So much so that I'll lie to obtain or maintain what it is I'm really treasuring in my heart, be it comfort, a good reputation, money, what have you. I mean, why do people lie on their tax forms? Is it not because in that moment they value money more than giving honest evidence? Why do people lie about their age or their accomplishments? Is it not that they value the approval of others more than God? If we're going to put away falsehood and speak the truth, truth to one another, even when it costs us, then we must own and confess our bad treasures. We need to uproot the sin beneath the sin of lying, which is idolatry. And we do that through confession and repentance and worship. By way of application, let me put it this way. If you want to speak truth, if you want to put away falsehood by, if you want to have wise words and treasure the incarnate word, I would encourage you, reread Ephesians 1 through 3. And as you do and you see all that God has done in the glory and the worth and the majesty of our triune God and what he's accomplished for us in Jesus Christ, as you reread Ephesians 1, 1 through 3, consider why Christ alone is worthy to live for in your complete devotion and worship in contrast to why your desires, wants, and wishes are not. That will cultivate right affections. So first, we're to replace truth-telling, we're to replace lying with truth-telling. Important I get that right. <laughs> well then, second, Paul continues to turn up the conviction meter to replace sinful anger with righteous anger. Look at verses 26 to 27. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Right? Change your behavior for biblical reasons. 
replace lying with truth-telling, and now replace sinful anger with righteous anger. I, I recently came across this meme. Perhaps you've seen it. You can't read it. The lady says this. She says, don't go to bed angry. Stay up all night and plot horrible revenge. <laughs> Something like it, right? You know, if, there, if there's ever been a verse that has been misunderstood and misapplied, it's most arguably this one. I have known of several couples, couples who have suffered through many sleepless nights because one or both of them in, in, insisted that based on this verse, they should not go to sleep until they resolved whatever disagreement they were facing. However, notice, the verse does not say, do not let the sun go down on your dispute. No, it says, do not let the sun go down on your what? Anger. Now, this doesn't mean that Eskimos at the North Pole can be angry and hold a grudge for six months of the year, right? While the sun is up. Of course not. What it does mean, though, is that while resolving a dispute might take some time, maybe even a couple of days, as Christians, we are commanded to not let our anger linger. Anger, for all its possible legitimacy, is dangerous and should not be turned into a grudge. Because you see, and this is, I, this is important, not all anger is bad. Do you know this? This is why Paul actually commands us, be angry and sin not. Faith, please hear me. The question is not, are you angry? But rather, what is the reason for your anger and what is the object of your anger? Are you angry because God's good law is dishonored or because you can't get your way? And I want to suggest to us, church, that often, many times, yay, 99 point up there times, our anger is motivated by the kingdom of self rather than the kingdom of God. That is, our hearts are treasuring our wants, wishes, ways, and desires more than God. And when someone or something threatens my kingdom, I get angry. I mean, is this not why you get angry in the car? I'm taking your laughter as a yes. Is this not why you get angry when your kid prevents you from leaving on time? Is this not why you yell at the TV when your team loses? It's the kingdom of self. The kingdom of self is being threatened. The kingdom of self is not expanding. You see, anger has everything to do with your heart and what you are treasuring. And you know how we know this is the case? Not only because Jesus explicitly teaches this, but because of what Paul writes in verse 26. 
As many have pointed out, you know what Paul is doing here in verse 26? He's actually quoting verbatim Psalm 4.4. You know what that verse says? I have it here on the screen. It says this, David writes, Be angry and do not sin. But you know what the next line of the verse is? Ponder in your own hearts on your own beds and be silent. Do you see what David is doing? I want to suggest that in our anger, he's inviting us to examine our hearts. What's going on in your hearts? What are you treasuring? Is it God, his law, his kingdom, his ways? Or is it me? <laughs> my kingdom, my wishes, my hopes, my aspirations. Friend, if your heart is more concerned with you, if you have reduced everything in your life down to the size of your little kingdom of one, then your anger will leave a legacy of fear, hurt, and separation. But if your chief concern is God, then your anger won't leave a legacy of fear, hurt, and separation. But rather, in your anger, you are not going to respond in a way that is contrary to the fruit of the Spirit. You see, in righteous anger, I'm not self-focused, but I'm God-focused, where I choose to honor God in my responses and resources. Indeed, based on what Scripture teaches, we could say this. Righteous anger should be slow and short. Elsewhere, we be multiple places in the Bible. Be slow to become angry. And as this verse testifies, the length of our anger should be short. When I, when I was studying this, I, I, I couldn't help... When I, this idea that anger should be slow and short. I couldn't help but think of a, of a guy I used to work with in the restaurant industry. Those that serve know that if you're in the restaurant industry, you need to have a sense of urgency. You, you, need, to, you need to pick it up. And we'll, we'll just call this guy's name, we'll just call his name Doug, but we called him One Gear Doug because he just had one gear. Slow. We, we, could be, we could be slammed on a Saturday night and one gear dug is just slowly, just slowly like pick up the pace, man. And he was short. So when I think of our anger, okay, okay, should be like one gear dug, okay? We should be slow to becoming angry and when we are angry, the length of time, like his height, should be short. I, I don't know if that helps anybody else, but it helps me this week, okay? And notice the reason why we're not to sin in anger. Again, 
Change your behavior for biblical reasons. Because faith, self-centered, sinful anger allows the devil, our adversary, to get a foothold. Faith, Satan, beware, Satan is looking for any kind of, any kind of gap where he can create a grudge. And if he finds it, he will enter and ruin life with all manners of bitterness. Right? One of the reasons why we don't sin our anger is because we believe the devil. We believe the truth God's word about the devil. And we don't want him to have a foothold in sidetracking all our relationships and to tempting us to becoming bitter. But then third, we're to replace stealing with working. Look again at verse 28. He says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Notice that, I mean, all throughout chapter 4, Right? This theme of truth, truth-telling, honest work. He says, honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. I recently read about a baker who suspected that the farmer who was supplying his butter was giving him short weight. His suspicions were confirmed when he carefully checked the weight of the butter for several days, incensed and just outraged, he had the farmer arrested. However, the judge threw the case out when the farmer explained that he had no scales. So he used a one-pound loaf of bread purchased from the baker as his counterbalance. The baker was the one who was actually doing the robbing, wasn't he? He was not doing honest work. Uh, Historians tell us that stealing was very typical in the first century in Asia Minor. It was like a societal norm. And truthfully, I don't think it's hard for us to see that it's typical in our day as well, is it not? I mean, unauthorized software usage, password sharing, and pirated videos are just the tip of the iceberg. We live in a culture whose retail prices can be inflated by a third due to shoplifting, whose employers budget for employee theft, where corporate scandals are so regular as to bore us, and where the government taxes us on the assumption that we will hide resources. Can I ask, have you stolen anything this week? Have you stolen time from your boss? Have you stolen company resources? that were meant for your job, but you instead used it on yourself? Notice Paul tells the church to break free from these societal norms. 
Instead, Paul reminds the believers of the need for honest work. We are created to work. Work is a good gift from God. Amen? And, and, this, is, <laughs> and this is astounding. And why should we not steal but instead work? Notice the reason given. It's significant. It's so that you would have something to share. Now consider this. As followers of Christ, we are to work not only to provide for our families. Yes, we're to work to provide for our families. But also so that we might be generous and have something to give. Do you look at your paycheck that way? Do you look at your work week and hours that way? Do you think, how can I work so I have something now to share, to give, to be generous? Notice, this is the exact opposite of theft, is it not? A, a thief, theft, steals from others. Paul is calling us to work so we can give to others. We are no longer to use our hands to get, but to give. And I wonder, hey, what if we really lived this way? What if we really viewed our wealth this way? You know, as Steve prayed for us this morning. We are looking for a church building. And I have no doubt that many of you are faithful, generous givers. But I wonder if some of you are not. Before we as a church embark on the journey of perhaps building a new place. Could we make it our responsibility to put on these practices? That we would view our work and our money, that, that we would say, I'm going to do honest work for the reason so that I can share, not just give for myself. And Christian, I, I want to just direct your attention to why we should do this. Consider for a moment all that God has done for you in Christ. Think about it. Jesus did the work we failed to do so that he could give us eternal life. Amen? What, what an exchange that is. The only thing we bring to salvation is the sin required that made Jesus have to die to forgive us. What does Paul write in 2 Corinthians? For our sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. Indeed, rich with all the spiritual blessings Paul has elaborated on in the first three chapters. Amen? Faith, listen to me. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died to save lying, angry thieves like me and you. 
On the cross, Jesus Christ paid the penalty we are owed for our dishonest lips, for our sinful anger, and for our self-centered, greedy hearts. Praise Him that in Christ we have full forgiveness of our sins and our trespasses. Then three days later, He rose from the grave, defeating sin and death, and proving himself to be the Son of God, so that now by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are forgiven of our sins, we're declared righteous in God's sight, and we're given the hope of eternal life. And, friend, by the Spirit's power, able to walk in newness of life. Amen? Change your behavior for biblical reasons. Let us, by God's grace, walk in a manner worthy of our calling, where we're speaking the truth to one another. Our anger is rightly centered. And we're hard working, looking for opportunities to give. Amen? Let's pray.